Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today we have Trina Tadaros with us. Welcome, Trina. Great to be here, Ben. Well, thanks for joining. And I know I say this every time and maybe I should stop, but gosh, we have a lot to talk about today. And I love what you've brought for us, which is a peek inside the President Biden pandemic plan. Much awaited what's going to be happening with the administration in terms of their addressing the pandemic and how they plan to go about it. So maybe we could start with that. Could you give us a bit of an overview of what's in the plan? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we've heard a lot on the campaign trail about then-candidate Biden's approach to the pandemic, and it's sort of in contrast with the approach taken by the Trump administration. And if I had to sum the two approaches up, I'd say that the Trump administration envisioned the federal government having mostly a supportive role, but not taking a very active role, with the exception of funding the development of the vaccines and FDA kind of taking a proactive approach in terms of helping companies through the review process for the vaccines and for other products, some of the diagnostics, some of the therapeutics, but otherwise sort of a backseat to the states and allowing the states to take control of their own fates in terms of the pandemic. The Biden administration and and Biden on the trail said that the federal government would have a much more active role. And so now in this plan, we have that kind of laid out in 200 pages. Truth be told, 20 pages are an executive summary. A good chunk of the pages in the back are executive orders printed out. So I'd say that, you know, 100 or so pages are the actual plan. They are organized around seven main goals And those goals are restoring trust with the American people, mounting a safe, effective and comprehensive vaccination campaign, mitigating spread through expanding masking, testing data, treatments, healthcare workforce, clear public health standards, immediately expanding emergency relief and exercising the Defense Production Act, safely reopening schools and businesses and travel while protecting workers, protecting those most at risk and advancing equity, including across racial, ethnic, rural suburban, rural urban lines, and finally restoring U.S. leadership globally and building better preparedness for future threats. So those are the seven goals. Just some quick observations from sort of pouring over this plan. It envisions a much greater use of the Defense Production Act to secure the pandemic supplies and supply chain. There's a pronounced emphasis on centralized data collection and dissemination, standardization too. So they want to uh, be more transparent with the data and make it more publicly available and standardized. Right now, we have a lot of collection of data by states that is not standardized. They are talking about tighter OSHA standards for worker safety, cheap rapid DIY antigen tests could be coming. We see some hints of that in the plan. And there's a focus on pandemic preparedness for the future. And one interesting piece that seems to be missing, at least in my eyes, is much talk about telehealth and the move toward home care that we've seen over the pandemic. There's not a lot in here about that. But otherwise, it really is about using the federal government to do as much as it possibly can within the bounds of the law to address the pandemic. 
Well, you've done the heavy lift for us and for our listeners. So you've taken 200 pages and really synthesized it down. Now, even with our podcast time, we're not going to be able to go through all of it. So I think the approach right now is let's just get a couple of examples of what this plan has in a few of these areas. And I think the number one area that there's been a lot of questions about is the supply chain and how we strengthen the supply chain. So Trina, could you give us a couple of examples from the plan of what the approach to supply chain is. So one of the things that we've heard a lot about in recent days is the supply of the vaccine. And so to ramp up the supply of the vaccine, you have to think about the vaccine itself, the vials that the vaccine comes in, the syringes used to administer the vaccine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's not just the actual vaccine that is the, that's the issue. It is all of those other pieces, many, many pieces. And so the plan envisions using the Defense Production Act to ramp up supply of all of these pieces, including explicitly called out in the plan, low dead space syringes. And these are the syringes that can extract an extra dose or two, particularly the Pfizer vaccine vials. And so it can make those vaccine vials go further. So you need a special kind of syringe for that. The kits that are sent to different vaccination sites and providers providing doing this, the vaccinations have some of these syringes, but they have kind of a mix. And so the idea is we want to have more of these so that more doses can be extracted from the vials. And in order to do that, you need to have those produced in greater volume. And that's not easy to do. So the use of the Defense Production Act could boost production of these special syringes. It also envisions using the DPA to boost production of lipid nanoparticles. This is a raw material or a material that's used in the manufacture of the two messenger RNA vaccines that have received the EUAs from the FDA. These are the two vaccines that people are receiving now. They both require lipid nanoparticles. Those are the vehicles for the messenger RNA that is sort of the way that the vaccines work. And so in order to boost production of the vaccines, of these two vaccines, we need more lipid nanoparticles. And so the DPA may be used to do that. So these are just some, a couple of the ways that the Biden plan envisions using this law to to boost production of these key pieces of the supply chain to boost supply of the vaccine. Those are great examples. I think it also really increases all of our understanding of the complication of what's in the supply chain by just giving these few examples here. What about eligibility in terms of the different groups? Is there anything in the plan that points to how that may change or what comes next? The plan envisions a federal government calling on states to open eligibility to broader groups, 65 and older, frontline essential workers. This is an interesting way to highlight the state versus federal responsibilities. States decide who gets the vaccine. This is not something that the federal government decides for the nation. The federal government can encourage can recommend, can do these kinds of things, but they cannot, in general, tell states or make a blanket policy for the country. And so you have here in the plan a calling on states to open eligibility to broader groups. This might be an echo of the masking requirement, right? So you saw President Biden saying, we are going to require masks in these small slices of the country where the federal government gets to call the shots on that, and then encouraging states to 
encourage masking because the states, in a lot of ways, are the ones that set that policy. So you have that here to this sort of encouragement. But in the end, it will remain a state decision. And that's why you have all of these different plans, 50 plus different plans, state to state to state about who is eligible for the vaccine. It's very hard to keep up with it. It changes in some cases day to day. Massachusetts just opened it up to a whole new group of residents just the other day. So these things are happening all over the country, you know, almost on a daily basis. So that is in the plan, but it does highlight the limitations that the federal government has. Despite its ability to do more, it doesn't have the ability to do everything. Well, we've looked at supply chain and taken a dive into eligibility. Next up is where this actually happens, right? The the sites, the distribution sites, and then, of course, the people, the workforce that's going to make these vaccine distributions happen. So anything you can tell us about those distribution sites and changes for the workforce? Yeah, so this is another sort of example of what the federal government can do. The plan envisions setting up a large number of federally supported vaccination sites that would be run by the Department of Defense, FEMA, and staffed by USDA, VA, Department of Defense staff. And so we should see in the next coming weeks these large mass vaccination sites run by the federal government being stood up. They also envision some more federal support to state and local run sites. And so here you have sort of the patchwork that we have, the federal sites, state and local run sites, retail pharmacies getting in the act, mobile vaccination clinics. You have all of these different entities involved in the effort to vaccinate. And that's why I think we have some of the confusion where people don't know where they're supposed to go to get vaccinated, how they're supposed to set up a vaccination appointment. Add to that the eligibility rules change changing state to state. And, you know, you have sort of a sense of confusion. Whether that will be ironed out in the coming weeks, I don't know. We don't see anything in the plan about that. I don't know how much the federal government can do to sort of smooth out or rationalize this process for all Americans. But we do see the federal government envisioning a greater role in setting up sites and helping local and state sites get run. The other question I think many people have is how do we better prepare for the next one? And there's actually a few points in this plan in terms of investments in infrastructure and investments that actually the health industry may take a part in implementing. So could you read us in a little bit into what some of those opportunities are in terms of building infrastructure for the next pandemic? Yeah, so there is quite a bit in the plan about looking forward to the next pandemic. We hope that we will not see another one for another hundred years, but you know, we should be prepared just in case this is a more often kind of event. And so there is some pieces in here in this plan for a five-year investment in onshoring manufacturing of test kits and related supplies for COVID-19 and also emerging biological threats so that we aren't caught off guard kind of like we were at the beginning of this pandemic, where it took a good long time for us to really ramp up testing. This sort of envisions a an investment in that so that next time around, we aren't sort of caught flat-footed like that. 
Also, the plan envisions expanding lab capacity for variants in emerging threats, genetic sequencing of these variants. This is something also we wish we had had at the beginning of the pandemic so that we could have watched and very easily and sort of comprehensively surveilled samples of the virus taken from people who have been infected to see how the virus is changing and watch for variants that could be of concern. That's why the UK, the UK did this back in March, and they have been a a wonderful resource for the world in showing sort of the variants emerging in their population. And very early on, we're able to identify the variant of concern B117, which we've heard a lot about, the so-called UK variant. In the United States, we don't have this ability yet to do this kind of national surveillance of the variants. And so this plan does envision um, setting something up to do that. It also envisions preparing for the next pandemic by creating a national center for epidemic forecasting and outbreak analytics. And that is kind of akin to a weather forecasting system for infectious diseases. And so that too would be an interesting and very useful kind of operation to stand up and certainly one that our um, academic medical centers and researchers will be involved in helping with, I'm sure. Well, you mentioned at the top of our call a bit about OSHA and some of the issues around employers. Just to broaden that out a little bit, so beyond just the healthcare, the clinical workforce, is there anything in the plan that that U.S. businesses should be aware of that might affect employees of any type of company? Yeah, I think employers might have to watch for new OSHA guidance on COVID-19 worker protections. The plan does indicate that the Biden administration intends to take a look at the guidance that's there right now and perhaps update it, meaning I would assume make the the protections more strict. They also promise that the feds will enforce compliance with additional rigor. And there are calls on Congress to pass paid sick leave for quarantine. So we might see some action on that, although that kind of thing would need to be passed through legislation. And it's not entirely clear how that would happen with such a slim majority in the House and the Senate. But yet these are things that would have implications for all healthcare employers. Eventually, the vaccines should be widespread and available enough that employers may be able to establish on-site vaccination centers for their employees. And so that is another piece that down the road employers should think about, similar to the way that they conduct flu vaccine clinics. This is sort of a down the road kind of thing. Right now, the federal government has bought up the vaccine and is distributing it, and employers are not part of this piece unless you're a healthcare provider, in which case you are involved in vaccinating your own employees, your healthcare worker employees, but in general, employers are not able to set up their own on-site vaccination clinics for their employees yet. But down the road, as long as the vaccine remains quite available and effective and things continue along the path that they're going right now, employers might have a role to play in that as well. So Ben, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that last mile question. I think that's the key to some of the slowness in the rollout of the vaccine has been that sort of question of how to get the vaccines to people who need to be vaccinated that last mile. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, and I think this is where kind of the planning meets reality. And I, and I thought you did a really nice job of walking us through what's in the plan. I, I think we're also, though, experiencing the reality of it's very difficult to get those shots in arms. I remember one of our earlier podcasts, we talked about our research around from vaccines to vaccinations and how there's a big path between those two things. Well, what we're seeing is there's actually a lot of challenges around that. And one of the reasons is because we actually don't have our social determinants of health well figured out here in the U.S. And so those are the kind of the non-traditional health items, our nutrition, our transportation, our income, the communities where we live, our education, all of those things which are often called the social determinants of health have these incredible effects on contextualizing a consumer's life. They contextualize people as humans living in their communities and their access to services. So what have we found? Well, sometimes there's confusion about where to go and where to get information. We're starting to see cracks in our access for things like broadband. Many signups for the vaccine do require doing it electronically and often with a time deadline and sometimes older adults don't have access to some of the technology that would help them do that. We're seeing cracks in our transportation system for people to actually get to the sites, and often they have to wait there for uh, a time. So even as things are moving forward under the vaccination and these programs, what's becoming quite clear is that over the years, we may have been missing some crucial investments in things that could wrap around the health system like transportation, communication, education, all of those things. You know, it kind of takes me back to some research we did under social determinants of health last year. And one of the things that we found is that the most effective treatments and interventions are often when you have the community involved and people close to the community. We looked at a case study out of Singapore of uh, trying to reduce youth smoking. And they tried a lot of different ways to do that to no avail. And they finally got involved sports teams. And these are areas where youth felt comfortable and they had role models that could really communicate with them. And when they started using those youth sport teams to work on smoking interventions, it, it actually had an effect and it reduced the amount of smoking. And I think that's just an analogy to how we have to think about things like vaccine hesitancy and access to care is when people have, when they have people in their own community that are talking to them about the vaccine and what they need to do next, then we tend to see a reduction in hesitancy and things move much smoother. So I think that's the last mile issue. I think it's a long-term issue for the U.S. health system past this pandemic is not just preparing for the next one, which hopefully, as you mentioned, is only 100 years away, if not more, but also just preparing our system to be more attuned to serving people where they live, work, and play. Well, with that as our last word for today, Trina, I'd like to thank you again. You came on, you took a 200-page plan and synthesized it down for us. So thank you very much for that. My pleasure. And if you'd like to hear more and see more about what we do in terms of our analysis on health industry trends, you can find us at pwc.com forward slash HRI. Thank you for joining us on Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved.
PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with per-